the goal of this series is to seek God's wisdom together and ultimately God himself in this letter and prayerfully ask God to use his word by his spirit to fuel our advancement together in the gospel. We've seen that for Paul, advancement or progress consists of one, the church growing in faith and joy in Christ together. And two, it consists of our transformative impact in the world around us. In other words, progress consists of both internal and external gospel growth. To recap over the last two weeks, we reflected on two of Paul's missional priorities in his introduction, praise and prayer. We looked at his kingdom perspective in life and ministry last week. We saw that it was an upside-down kingdom perspective. And this morning, we'll examine his posture in life and ministry. His posture. The new Oxford American Dictionary defines posture as not only a position which someone holds their body, which might be a helpful illustration for our study, but I want to use their second definition of posture as a particular way of dealing with or considering something, an approach or attitude. In this morning's passage, we will see that Paul's posture points us toward progress. Let's pray, and then we'll pick up where we left off. We'll read the final four verses of chapter one. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have much to review today in your word, Lord, and we don't want to miss anything. This is the very heart of your word and of this letter in particular, what we'll be studying today, Lord, so help us. Help us to see your glory in it. Not just read your glory. Open the eyes of our hearts to see the fullness of your beauty, your love for us, Lord. Empty us today and fill us up with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers will pass out Bibles for anyone who uh, would like to track with us with a Bible in hand. Otherwise, Scripture will be up on the screen. Let's pick up where we left off, chapter 1, verse 27. And we'll, and we'll, we'll start by just reading the, the, the final four verses of, of this chapter. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. This opening line here in verse 27 
is the very thesis statement of the book. It's the first command of Paul's to the Philippian church. And it starts with only because it's connected to the previous verses that we studied last week. Remember, Paul is locked up and yet convinced that he will be delivered from his imprisonment and he longs to be reconnected with the Philippian church there. He just shared his report last week, we saw, on his status and his circumstances. And here we see that whether he gets to see them or not, whether he gets to return, he wants to hear a report from them. Now, we're familiar with how he commands them here. He wants them to focus on one main task. This might look something like this today. You and your spouse are getting ready to go out on that date that you've been planning for six months. And the babysitter's here. And so right before you walk out the door, you tell your kids, okay, kids, you could do whatever you want with Miss Rosie. Only remember to clean up after yourselves. One task left behind. Remember one thing. Here, Paul draws their attention to the one primary task that he calls the Philippian church to. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Not be perfect so that you can be worthy of the gospel. We know he doesn't mean that because the gospel is a gift of grace. He means that what he writes elsewhere we see in his letters like Galatians in particular, what he means is keep your conduct in step with the gospel of Jesus, whom you claim allegiance to. D.A. Carson also says it well. Conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. Now what's interesting to note here is that the word for conduct is the same word from which we get our word, politics. Paul wants to see them conducting themselves and their affairs as citizens of the gospel. Citizenship in the kingdom of God is significant for Paul in this book. As we saw in the intro when we reflected on their context in Philippi, and as we will continue to see throughout the letter. Paul then explains what conduct consists of as citizens of the gospel. He says, I want to see two things from you all. One, that you're standing firm in unity. And two, that you're striving together for the faith of the gospel, for its advancement. But then he adds, in no way alarmed by your opponents. So let's say that for Paul, conduct worthy of the gospel consists of two things here. Standing firm in unity and striving fearlessly for the gospel. Together, he notes, 
This literally means to contend side by side as in a tournament. Contrary to what we may desire or prefer, the Christian life is lived out on a battleground, not a playground. It's important for Paul that the Philippians expect and are prepared for opposition. Paul says, when it comes, don't be alarmed in no way at all. Citizens of the kingdom of God, children of God, servants of Christ Jesus, we're secure. Amen? When we stand united and fearlessly secure in Christ, we stand as a signpost, a banner that points to Jesus, the cosmic judge of the universe. As we stand securely, anchored in Christ, letting the opposing currents of the world flow right by, whether it be individuals or people or movements or agendas or theories of all kinds that oppose the gospel. When we stand in no way alarmed, we demonstrate that their opposition is not with us, but with God. We stand as a signpost of peace, radiating the salvation and security of God, and yet also as a signpost of doom, he's saying right here. This is important for us to understand, family. Paul says here that our identification with Christ in opposition and persecution has been graciously granted to us. Oh, no. I don't like that. No, no, Paul. No one persecutes me. No one makes me suffer for my faith. We will fight. Family, this is real. Our fierce opposition to opposition is deeply ingrained in the hearts and minds of much of the church in the Western world, and specifically in America today. Because we've really only known how to live out our faith from a place of power and influence in this country. Now, to clarify something important, this is not necessarily a bad thing. The Western church has been used by God to advance the gospel all over the world. The Western church has been used by God to transform societies and to bring about true liberation from all kinds of oppression and, and poverty all throughout the world. Praise God for that. And yet, our context is changing. Significantly, the name of Jesus is one of the most common curse words of our day. You hear it. 
Christianity is oppressive in the eyes of many today. It hurts. Opposition will likely continue to increase in the days ahead for us, family. But it will be texts and biblical truths like this that keep us secure in Christ Jesus and full of joy no matter our circumstances. Because in these texts, we see that God has purposes in it. God grants us both our faith in Christ for salvation, we like that, but also our suffering for Christ. But it's purposeful so that we display to the world our security in him and his glorious gospel of grace. We're a display people. I hope we see the flip side of this as well. To fight is to meet opposition where it stands. And then the fight is between us, not God. Too often, this kind of fight ends up defaming the name of God in our conduct. That's anti-gospel conduct. So, Paul, how do we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, standing firm in unity and striving fearlessly for the gospel? There are many ways we can answer this question, but Paul has one main focus in view of working toward this primary task. So let's read on. Let's read the first five verses in chapter 2 and see how Paul answers this question. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul builds a case for his one primary task in another way that we might be used to. For example, often for those who have children, when we go about calling them to a particular task, sometimes it's just not that easy. And so we might employ a similar tactic. We might say, excuse me, did we not have fun together today? Did we go to the pool? We even got ice cream? Did you enjoy all that? Well, I'm asking you now to please clean up after yourself, okay? Okay. Point made, command obeyed, hopefully. Can you tell by my illustrations the phase of life I'm in right now? <laughs> Likewise, Paul assumes that the body will hear his questions 
and respond with resounding yeses. If you've had any encouragement, consolation, fellowship, and compassion in Christ, yes, 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 then make my joy complete. Make me proud, family. How? In your unity of mind, heart, and spirit, focused on one purpose. That's the task, striving together for the gospel. He goes on to lay out two negatives to avoid and one chief positive to do. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, nor anything from vain conceit, he says. These things prevent unity and are enemies of fellowship. But do this, have humility of mind. Looking out for the interests of others over your own. Regarding others as more important than yourselves. Have this attitude among you. This is the key to fulfilling your purpose. Humility. Humility, which we see in Christ Jesus. Let's read on now and enter into one of the most theologically rich passages in the entire Bible with respect to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're going to pick up on and, and reread verse 5 because that links the passage here. So let's read from verse 5 through 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. The best way that Paul can encourage his friends in Philippi to live in humility, striving together for the gospel, is to draw their attention to the humiliation of Jesus. There is a direct relationship between the saving events of the gospel and the conduct appropriate for those in Christ Jesus. When asked once by a friend, how can I be more humble? The great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there is only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something that you can create within yourself. 
Rather, you look at him. You realize who he is and what he has done, and you will be humbled. Father, help us now to marvel at the beauties of your son, Jesus. We pray, empty us of ourselves, Lord, and fill us with the fullness of Jesus Christ. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Let's look to Jesus now and bask in the deep well of our faith and joy. We're going to walk slowly through this passage. Verse 6, Jesus who existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul notes first that the pre-existent Son of God has always shared in the fullness of God's glory and nature. Hebrews 1.3 affirms that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God. Next. Though he is God, he did not regard his equality with God something to be grasped. This is vital. Jesus is God. Now, what did he do with his divinity? This verse says he didn't hold on to it. He didn't assert his divinity. Okay, what does that mean? Next, verse 7. But rather he emptied himself. Whoa. God empties himself. Okay, so the Son of God who exists in the heavenly places for all eternity. Every word here is important. <laughs> the Son of God who exists in, in, in the heavenly places for all eternity did not assert himself there, but rather emptied himself voluntarily. How? By taking on the form of a servant or slave, which means here, being made into a man. The incarnation. Christmas in July. For real. Right here. Next, verse 8. Having become the God-man on earth, the one who always existed and became, he humbled himself. Another voluntary action. How? By perfecting obedience unto his death, even death on a cross. Okay, so let's zoom back out now and interpret what's going on here. The pre-existent Christ did not lose any part of his divinity in order to become a man, but rather, he took the fullness of mankind onto the fullness of his divinity. 
he became a God-man, fully God, fully man. He didn't exchange natures, one for the other. Rather, he displayed the nature of God in the form and nature of a slave. That's big. Now, in becoming the God-man, he chose to empty himself of something that belonged to him. His divine rights and privileges. He didn't need to do anything. And he doesn't need anything. He chose in love to become a slave, a bondservant. And in so doing, he let go of asserting the fullness of his power, his rights and privileges for a purpose, redemption. In contrast to Adam's disobedience in Genesis, in his desire to be like God, Jesus, the perfect God-man, let go of his divine position, descended fully to the bottom of the pit in order to rescue, reconcile, and redeem us by fulfilling perfect obedience to God in our place, taking our judgment in our place. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, thank you, Adam, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Thank you, Jesus. That's Romans 5, Paul's writing elsewhere. Jesus did not see himself as exempt from the task of redeeming humanity because of his position, but precisely because he was equal to God and had divine rights and privileges, he saw himself as qualified for God's redemptive purposes. He treated his fellowship and equality with God as an occasion to renounce his advantages and privileges, not for self-enrichment, but for self-sacrifice, for us, for our enrichment. Was it worth it, Jesus? You emptying yourself, was it worth it? Your service, your humility, your death on a cross? A crucifixion was a death of unimaginable pain and utter shame. Rome's famous statesman Cicero recorded his thoughts about the cross right before Jesus' time, noting, far be the very name of the cross, not only from body, but even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. Utter humiliation. 
Was it worth it? We better believe it was. We better believe it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and was indeed exalted to the right hand of God the Father where he sits on the throne forever and ever. It's not going to be the name of the cross that will flow out of the mouths of everyone on the face of this planet when he returns. It will be the name of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. All to the glory of God. That's upside down, Romans. And right side up, Christians. Paul says this. The glorious gospel of Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us, this is what will produce within us humility. And thereby keeping us in unity and fueling our progress. A posture of humility. Andrew Murray, in his classic essay on humility, which I would recommend, I have some resources to recommend, this little thing right here, this will rock your world, <laughs> as it did for me this week. He writes, the first and chief marks of the dying Lord Jesus, of the death marks that show the true follower of Jesus, is humility. Only humility leads to death. Only death perfects humility. Humility and death, in their very nature, are one. Humility is the bud. In death, the fruit is ripened to perfection. What he's noting here is that the death of Christ was the cosmic certification of his humility perfected, his obedience fulfilled. Dying to self is the essence of humility. Christ Jesus was perfectly free of selfish ambition and vain conceit and perfectly full of humility and love. It is the purposes of God and the passion of Paul's to see us conform more and more together to the heart and mind of Christ. He wants to see our posture toward one another and toward the world around us reflect the posture of Christ towards us. That of humility. Murray writes, it is easy to think we humble ourselves before God. Humility towards men will be the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. That's a big word. Family, this is not easy for us. 
Not only does humility defy our natural disposition toward self-deification, making ourselves like God, the essence of sin, but it also defies our deeply ingrained views of power and rights. Everything around us, family, Everything around us in life and culture is shaping us in the mindset of survival of the fittest. Advance, achieve, rise higher, higher, more, more, grasp tightly what is yours and accumulate more and more, tighter, tighter. And life in the kingdom of God is preserved by survival of the weakest, by conforming to the one who identified himself as gentle and lowly, the one who exerted his power and rights not for self-enrichment, but in service toward others. You, us, the one who through letting go received everlasting power and eternal heavenly riches. This is not easy for us. It's very difficult to attain on our own. It's risky to give up our power, our rights, our privileges. It makes us vulnerable. It makes us weak. And God says, yes. That's exactly right. It is there as you empty yourself that I can fill you to the brim and overflow with me. My joy, my honor, my security, my love will be your exaltation. Andrew Murray writes, Humiliation is the only ladder to honor in God's kingdom. Brethren, here is the path to the higher life. Down, down lower. Just as water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds his children abased and empty, his glory and power and gladness flow in to exalt and to bless thee. Down is the way up in the kingdom of God. As Jesus so wonderfully revealed in his death and resurrection. Amen? Let's close this morning's passage by reinforcing the fruit of our posture of humility that we find in Christ Jesus. Verses 12 through 18. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So then, my beloved, a heartfelt appeal to his family in Christ. He says, work out your salvation. Live this out. Not in confident arrogance in your abilities, but in reverent humility. Confident in God alone who is the one who works his salvation in us and through us toward what is good according to his good will and his good purposes. Work it out. Live it out, Paul says. That which God has been working in. Murray notes, I told you, I'm quoting him, this book, It'll rock your world. Murray notes, humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others. It is the root of all. Because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. Fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your gaze upon him, Paul is saying here. Soak up his humility. Fill yourself with the presence of God and you will be emptied of your selfishness. You too will walk in humility just like him. Live it out. Live as a banner of truth, a signpost displaying you are his, he is yours, Jesus is Lord. Notice the bookends of 14 through 18, these final verses, a negative command and a positive command. Do not grumble or argue, but rather rejoice. Both attitudes of the heart, but only one is produced by looking at Christ. You're the shining stars of Daniel's prophecy, chapter 12. Shining brightly as citizens of the kingdom of God in the kingdoms of the earth. And one day we will shine forever in the kingdom of heaven. Shine, lights, shine. Look to Christ. Walk in humility without any grumbling or disputing. And you will shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation.
You don't fight the generation, you heard? Nowhere in Scripture do we see fight the generation. We fight ourselves. We fight the crooked desire that, rise up for, that rises up from within to want to fight the generation. You see that? That's upside down. We don't fight the generation. We shine as lights of Christ in humility, in love, and in truth. That doesn't mean we be fools. I'm no pacifist, family. That doesn't mean that we let the generation take hold of us. Oh no, far from it. In the humility of Christ, we stand stronger than ever. Paul makes it very clear how we shine. He says, holding fast to the word of life. The word of God, which in it we see the word of God incarnate, Jesus. Paul says, you grasp that. Grasp him. And like an oil lamp whose wick is firmly planted in the oil, soaking, soaking, soaking. You will burn brighter than ever. You will shine the very oil you soak up. Snip the wicks which soak in rotten oils, family. Snip the wick, soaking up the news. Snip the wick, soaking up hateful political and social commentators. Snip the wick, soaking up arrogant, crooked YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok videos. And plant the wicks of your hearts firmly in the word of life. See him, savor him, shine him. Family, there's a lot of grumbling and arguing and anger that spews out of the mouths and hearts of people who claim to be Christians all across our land. Be sure of this, that is not the light of Christ, but rather the light that radiates off the flames of hell. Beware, family. Beware. There's a reason why I speak so strongly here, because there's a reason why these very words are here. Remember what happened to the people of God in the Old Testament, who were constantly grumbling and arguing, 
Paul refers back, Paul refers to them as examples in, in many of his letters. Scripture says, the destroyer destroyed them. Watch your hearts, family. Watch your hearts. There will come a day when that which dwells within us will be proven. Let it be Christ in you, my beloved. This is me to you now, Austin, to Riverstone. Let it be Christ in you, the real Christ, gentle and lowly. He is not far from us. He's right here. Believe, receive him. Family, I am convinced of better things for you all. I mean that. You bring me so much joy. And I mean that. I was just sharing on Friday with an EFCA rep out of New York City how filled I am with joy this season because of you. Because of you. I mean that. Many of you are asking me these days, how are you doing? It must be so busy for you, which I appreciate your care. To which I've been responding time and time again, that which is true, yes and no. Yeah, sure, it's busy. When is it not? It's busy for you too. But no, I'm not overwhelmed. I'm full, family. I'm full of joy because you are standing in unity. And you've been striving together for the faith of the gospel toward progress both internally and in our community around us. And I've been so encouraged by you all. And I tell you, I represent all our pastors, elders, and staff when I say that. We're all full because of you and God's work among us. Let's Continue to press on, family. I am convinced of better things for you, from you, and with you. Let's heed this word together, amen, looking to Christ. And with Paul, let's pour ourselves out in service to one another and the world around us, trusting that this place, starting in every single one of our hearts, will overflow with joy. Do you want that? I do. More and more. Amen? All to the glory of God. Paul's posture points us toward progress. Murray closes his book with a short two-liner hymn. Oh, to be emptier and lowlier, unnoticed and unknown, and to God a vessel holier, filled with Christ and Christ alone. Let it be Christ in us, family. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are so good and beautiful. It is beyond our comprehension 
to understand the fullness of this passage that we just studied. Lord, help us to reflect on this deep, infinite well of of beauty and glory and goodness. Help us reflect on you, Lord Jesus, your humility, your love toward us, your sacrifice, your service. Help us. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with yourself. For those who do not know you, Lord, give them faith. You just told us in this world that it is you who grants faith to believe. Lord, grant, open the eyes of, of, of their hearts to see and behold the beauties of knowing you. Fill us up together. Strengthen us in unity. Fuel our progress to strive together for the sake of the gospel. Lord, help us be trees firmly planted by streams of water whose leaves flourish in and out of season, that together, Lord, we would prosper in all our ways, true advancement, that you would be glorified in us, through us, and we would be filled with the joy of our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.